not all religion is acceptable to God. Not everything that we do or everything that we are is enough to satisfy Him. In 40 Days of True Religion, we are exploring our Monday morning faith, not our Sunday morning faith. What happens on Sunday is important, but what happens on Monday is even more important. So today we're going to look at Monday morning religion from the perspective of the Old Testament, the book of Amos. You can turn there. Next Sunday morning we will look at Monday morning faith from the perspective of James, the brother of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, open them to the prophet Amos. Let's begin with asking the question, who is Amos? Well, according to Amos chapter 1, verse 1, he identifies himself and he says this, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. Where's Tekoa? I'm glad you asked. Tekoa is located near Bethlehem, a few miles south of Bethlehem. There we go. Uh, you see Jerusalem, you see Bethlehem, and then there's Tekoa. If, if you go to Herodian, the, bur the burial place of King Herod the Great, you can stand on top of this artificial mound, and you can see Tekoa. If you've been there with me, they don't always point it out, but it's there for sure. So it's a little bit south, but where was he supposed to, to go? Well, he was alive during the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel, so that's in the north, but he is from the south, from Judah. And so he was to go from Tekoa up to the north to Israel to prophesy. And so he preaches late in the history of Israel, uh, not many years before Assyria comes and destroys Israel once and for all in the north. Now, he mentions an earthquake, we don't know anything about that earthquake. It was obviously significant to them, but, uh, you know, it wasn't, I guess, a seven or an eight. It must have been a four or a five or a six. I don't know. So uh, we don't know anything about that. In chapter 7, verse 14, he says this, Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. He's not a trained prophet. He didn't attend the school of the prophets. He was a herdsman. He was a rancher. He was a farmer. And he goes from the south and he's told to proclaim the message of God to the north. The sycamore tree is like a fig tree. They would slit these though on the, on the tree and, and they would help them ripen. It was the fruit of poor people however, not a delicacy. But what was it like in Israel and Judah in the days when Amos prophesied, when he preached? Well, the Assyrians had come mm, 40, um, in, in the late eight, 800s, and this is about the mid 700s, so 40, 50 years before Amos was around. The Assyrians had come from the north and they conquered Syria and then, surprisingly, they turned around and went back home. So when that happened, Israel now has no foreign enemies. Now they're, they're free. They can kind of do what they want to do. And so with no, no foreign enemy, what happens? Their prosperity grows. 
They, they, they become very um, affluent. And from God's perspective, Jeroboam II, he's an evil king, but he's a very good administrator. He's a great military leader. And so he seizes control of the trade routes. I know it doesn't seem significant to you and me, but he controls the entrance to Target. If you control the entrance to Target, you can charge people for going in. And that's what he does. And you can see how Israel lies within the... Within the you know where Israel is there. It's really tiny, but I can't control that on my program. You can see Babylon over there, Turkey up there, Syria. If you want to trade with Egypt, how do you get there? Unless you go clear across the desert, you come through Israel. And at least you got some flatlands down by the coast. And so he controlled the trade routes and he charged a lot of money. Israel became very wealthy in the days of Jeroboam II. They made a ton of money because they controlled the trade. It was becoming very similar to the days of Solomon, 200 years before this, where the people were wealthy. And a similar surge occurs down south in Judah under King Uzziah. But all of this takes place about 40 years, maybe 50 years, before Assyria returns. And when Assyria returns, they crush Israel. And it won't be long before there is no more Israel, even though life is very good. Amos spoke to a people who lived in the wealthiest nation of its time, and that should have made them thankful, but it didn't. It made them materialistic. They loved their stuff. Amos spoke to a people with a strong military which should have made them responsible, but it made them arrogant. Amos spoke to a people proud of their religious heritage, but who had lost their connection with their God, and they didn't seem to care very much about that. He spoke to a people where religion had become easy and convenient and politically correct, but found that it left them far from God, starving for some reality in their relationship with God. The parallels to contemporary society are amazing. So what was his message? What did Amos say? What, did he, what, did, what was the, the, the gist of what he had to say? We're obviously not gonna go verse by verse through the book of Amos, there's nine chapters. But there's four major sections in the book of Amos that at least I feel obligated to, to at least share with you so you get some idea of what this book's about. The first part is this, the first major section, there's seven judgments and a very big surprise. He writes primarily to Israel in the north and he approaches it like a, a bird of prey. He, he comes around and he circles and he circles and he's getting down lower and lower. And as he circles, you can, you can see what he's, he's doing. He's driving toward this, this rather surprising twist. He begins with Damascus in the north. And he says, you're just a very cruel person. Can you read that? Can you read Damascus? That's as big as I can make it in my, in my Bible map program. It's 200%. It doesn't go any bigger. Someone should tell the... Uh, Whatever, whoever. Maybe we need a coder here that could fix this. He starts in Damascus. They were cruel. He heads down to Philistia. See, he has a big wide strip. To the, today, that's the Gaza Strip. They were, they were active in the slave trade, and he crushes them for that. Then he moves up the coast to Tyre. 
and he, he's making this big circle. They'd broken their treaties and their agreements. Then he comes down, swoops down to Esau or Edom. They, they just refuse to forgive Israel. They hate Israel. Then he goes back up the east side to Ammon, modern Jordan. Ammon, the capital today is Ammon. Okay, Jordan, modern Jordan. They, you know, they're greedy. They are hungry for land. He comes then to Moab, who just hates Israel again. Then he descends on Judah in the south and Israel. And I called it Samaria, I think, because if I type in Israel, it goes on top of Judah. There is, I, we are all very well aware that there is no Samaria in this day, okay? Samaria is Israel, okay? I don't want to get your notes. There is, Samaria doesn't happen until... 100, 200 years later. But anyway, then there's a big surprise. Amos chapter 2, verse 13, says this. He's done all of this circling. He's coming down, and then he says, Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong men will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Talking to Israel, they are in for some very difficult days. And it happens 40, 50 years later, not very long away, when Assyria will invade in 722. So he starts with these, with these seven judgments. He moves on then to three sermons that nobody wanted to hear. Okay? I don't know. Each of them begins with the phrase, hear the word. Hear this word. There's a message in chapter 3 to all 12 tribes. And then in chapter um, 4, there's a message to the women of Bashan, who, you know, he doesn't have nice things to say about them. They're wealthy and smug. And then he has a message directed to specifically to Israel in, chapter, in chapters 5 and 6. Now, we're going to come back to those messages because we're going to pick them apart and, and deal with them a little more topically than as a message. Then the book moves to five word pictures that nobody wanted to see. Okay, these like visions. There's locusts in chapter 7. There's fire in chapter 7. Then there's the plumb line of God's righteousness. Then there's a, a small historical interlude followed by this ripe fruit. They're rotten, they're so ripe. They're ripe for judgment. And then God's by the altar in, in chapter 9. And then there's this ending. Look at this ending that nobody saw coming. It's been destruction, destruction, destruction. It's a book full of doom and gloom. But there's an amazing ending. Verse 11 of chapter 9. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom, all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do all these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. And the new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord.
after all that, they needed that. Some hope at the end. But the question I really want to ask today is, what does Amos say to us? What's his message to us today? I think to apply this book to our lives and to our setting, you need to uncover the heart of his message. The heart of his message is really like a large tree. It has roots and a large trunk, and I couldn't find a tree with just a few branches. There aren't a lot of branches in this, in this book, but you get the idea. You see, the trunk is the central message. It's of judgment. It's big, it's dark, it's unavoidable. And the relentless uh, prediction throughout the book is it's coming to Israel, the, the north. The roots, these are the sins that they've been committing that cause the anger of God to grow. The branches are the, cause, are, are the call for change. There aren't many calls for change. But what gives Amos his power and his impact, I think even today, is the way he exposes the root system to the light of the holiness of God. There's one main taproot from which spring three other large roots. And those, together those four things really cause the anger of God to burn against Israel. The taproot is that the people have forsaken their God. You've walked away. What are you doing? And these roots that branch off, off from that rejection, are they become addicted to luxury. Give me my stuff and make sure I'm comfortable. Their indifference to dishonesty. They don't care. You cheat, you whatever. And third is their hard-heartedness against the poor. They could care less. And to set the stage for what we want to learn from this this morning, I gotta, we got to spend a little bit of time looking and exploring this, this taproot that Israel has forsaken God. Amos 4 describes five acts of judgment that God performed. Each one, I'm, I'm doing this judgment to hopefully win you back. Do you see what you're doing? But every time the result's the same. Amos chapter 4, verse 6, he, he does a judgment and then he says, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Verse 8, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Verse 9, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Do you think they'd get the message? Verse 10, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Verse 11, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. This is the problem, he says. This is that taproot of judgment. You need to fear God. You've not returned to me. How do we know they never returned? Chapter 5, verse 26. You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. They, first, they, they had idolatry rampant. They didn't worship God. But there were other more subtle ways that that rejection expressed itself. In their sexual behavior, they hardly gave God a thought. And, and Amos says, well, you know, that's really 
a dishonoring to who God is. Chapter 2, verse 7, Father and Son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. At the root of all sexual sin is an indifference to the honor of the name of God. And there are a lot of people today who talk as if God is real, but their sexual lives shout because they don't ask the question, does a holy God approve of my behavior and delight in my sexual habits? See, when we compartmentalize God, he's allowed in this area and not allowed in that. It's a, it's a hint that we are forsaking God. It's an invitation for him to come and to judge Another subtle way that their rejection of God expressed itself was, was when they went to church. Well, they didn't have church, I know. When they went to synagogue, temple, whatever. They gave offerings. They sang hymns. But listen carefully. Bethel and Gilgal were central places of worship for the northern kingdom. They, they couldn't go to Jerusalem anymore. They wouldn't go to Jerusalem. Jeroboam had set up his own place up at, at Tel Dan for them to come. And so they created these other hubs of worship. And so in, in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about all your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites. This is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. Then in chapter 5, verse 21, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. He's the one who told them to do it. I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. So it wasn't just that they had a praise band. Just saying. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Amos is a devastating book for people who just give token attention to God. It's devastating for people who just show up on Sunday and forget God on Monday morning. People who come to church, but their hearts are much more engaged by sports, which wasn't a good day for LA yesterday, or businesses, <laughs> or family, our hobbies. If doing your worship thing just helps you to look respectable, well, you're really still attached to the world and to your own comfort, then do yourself a favor and stay home. Because God hates your worship. He even hates your singing. See, the taproot of Israel's sin was that their heart was far from God, even when they came to worship. So when Amos calls for repentance, the first thing he says in verse 4, this is what the Lord, of chapter 5, this is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. What? Seek me. 
and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. Okay, now you're, you know, Gilgal and and, uh, Bethel are up in the north. Don't even go clear down to the south. Don't even go into Judah and worship at Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour and Bethel will have no one to quench it. Get right with God. Get real with him. Don't make him equal to the places where you worship. Don't equate him with acts of religion. He is real. He is a person. Seek him. Know him. Love him. Return to the Lord, or he will sweep the house away like like the house of Joseph like a fire. Which leads me to, to really three specific takeaways this morning. If that's the taproot, they really just weren't real with God. Then what are we supposed to take away from that? What are the applications of that to our lives? Three of them. Number one, if I am not right with others, I am not right with God. Israel didn't return to the Lord. And because of that, the taproot of rebellion against God, it grew and it grew. They became more and more and more addicted to their luxury. They became indifferent to to dishonesty. Their heart grew hard to the poor. And the taproot bore three roots that condemned the nation even more. They thought all was well. We'll just go do our thing at Gilgal. We'll be okay. We'll go to Bethel. We'll go clear down to Beersheba if you want. But she fell in love with her luxury, and she boasted in her own strength and in her own wealth. Chapter 6, verse 4. You rich people lounge around on beds with ivory posts while dining on the meat of your lambs and calves. You sing foolish songs to the music of harps, and you make up new tunes just as David used to do. God responds in verse 8, the sovereign Lord has sworn by his own name, and this is what he, the Lord God of heaven's armies, says. Powerful. I despise the arrogance of Israel, and I hate their fortress. I will give this city and everything in it to their enemies. You see, when God stops being the treasure of your heart, then your heart is going to fasten itself on the comforts and the pleasures of this world. And unless God graciously intervenes, our addiction to comfort will make us indifferent to dishonesty. We're not going to care what's going on just so I'm comfortable. Verse 6 of chapter 6, you drink all the wine you want. You wear expensive perfume, but you don't care about the ruin of your nation. Do we see that today in our world and in our church? People who live for comfort but do not grieve over the lostness of humanity? People who are experts in loving themselves but give no thought of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. 
So let's meddle, shall we? We're gone this far down this path. What governs your getting and your spending? How do you decide? Is it the desire to fill your little life with as much comfort as you can? Is that what you live for? Or is it the God-given desire to do as much good as you can do for others, for the glory of Christ? There's a warning in chapter 3, verse 15. It's a little too close to PV, but I kind of have to read it anyway. The Lord says in, in Amos 3.15, I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Amos says, guard your heart diligently. Or one morning you are going to wake up and you're going to find yourself addicted to comfort, addicted to luxury. And how will we know? When you don't care about the needs of those around you. If I'm not thinking correctly about others and how I'm treating them, I cannot be right with God. It's impossible. 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brothers. A barometer for measuring your walk with God is how am I treating other people? Whoever loves God has to love his brother. And if that's true, that leads me to application number two. Justice matters. Because if I love my stuff and my comfortable lifestyle, I will be dishonest so I can keep it. And I don't care about you, I'm gonna take care of myself. Amos sees this clearly. He sees how they live in Israel. You know, he's the country guy coming up to the luxurious palaces and all the wealth and all that. He sees this. And his very first words against Israel in chapter 2 go straight to the issue. Verse 6, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, that means for everything, I will not turn my back or my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. I can't help the poor, I gotta buy these new sandals. I trample on the heads of the poor. I deny justice to the oppressed. Chapter four, verse one, gives a graphic picture of these wealthy women in the upper crust of society. When he writes, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. The cows are the women. They're on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Then in 512, he shows how this corruption mixes with a hard heart. He writes, for I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. 
And finally, in, verse, in chapter 8, we see this religious hypocrisy with a love for wealth mixed together. And he writes in verse 4, You people crush those in need and wipe out the poor. You say to yourselves, how much longer before the end of the new moon festival? When will the Sabbath be over? Because we, we can't do the, the, the partying, you know? Come on. Our wheat is ready and we want to sell it now. We can't wait to cheat and charge high prices for the grain we sell. We will use dishonest scales and mix dust in the grain. Those who are needy and poor don't have any money. We will make them our slaves for the price of a pair of sandals. You want to bring the anger of God in your life? Ignore your sin. Be a dishonest merchant. Be greedy. Even if you cover your sin by coming to church, God will deal with that. So what do you do? There is only one call to repentance in the entire book of Amos. Chapter 5, verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord. But conversion is more than just a change in your mind about God. He wants you to exchange your love of comfort for a love of goodness and for a love of justice. Chapter 5, verse 14, seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is, you think he is. Hate evil, love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. That's all of Israel, Joseph. Oh, to have a church full of people who don't care if they live in comfort, but who hate evil, love good, devote themselves to establishing justice in the gate. People who feel grief and indignation, not just when their own right to get rich is threatened, but when children die of starvation and when people die without knowing Christ as Savior. What is he when he writes maintain justice in the court. What does that mean? What does it mean to maintain justice in the courts? What I don't think it means is to have a society without any distinctions. It has to mean that we have a society without oppression. No more exploitation. No more small print in contracts. Not needed. No more price manipulating monopolies. No more Marie Antoinette's, I'll let them go eat cake. No more Robin Hoods who steal from the rich and give to the poor. No more central socialist committees who hold a gun to your head and tell you how much is really yours and how much is your neighbor's. No more fat capitalist cats who walk by Lazarus every day on their way to work off their latest five pounds of wine on the treadmill. No more false advertising. No more slipshod workmanship for 60 bucks an hour. Whenever, it, is when, when, it is when every wage is fair and every contract is plain and every agreement is kept and everyone strives for the advancement of his fellow man and not just his own, all for the glory of God. 
than justice, we will maintain it in the courts. But how do we do that? How do we get there? It might not come like you think it's going to come. I think it only comes when we work at producing men and women whose hearts are on fire with the righteousness of God. When we have the righteousness of God in our hearts, we can work together. We can know what elements of righteousness should be enacted into civil law. See, when a slumlord gouges an immigrant family with exorbitant rent in a downtown neighborhood, it's not necessarily because of bad laws. It's because of a bad man. Therefore, we have to guard ourselves against the naive idea that, that those who are working for greater and more specific rent control at City Hall are necessarily working any harder for justice than those who work to convert that man in a downtown neighborhood charging those exorbitant rents that his business might ring with the righteousness of Christ. To do that is just as, as, a, as a quest for justice as what's done in City Hall. And if America stays free, which, by the way, is not the main goal of the church, it would be a wonderful byproduct, but it's not our goal. If America stays free, it will not because, be because Christian right-wingers have pushed through some prayer agenda and prayer amendment, or because Christian left-wingers have pushed through bigger government subsidies for housing and jobs. It will be because the salt of the earth and the light of the world has exerted such a profound spiritual effect on our hearts that we share that with the heart and the soul of the nation that men and women might feel the pain and the pangs of conscience when they break a contract, when they gouge a refugee, when they inflate their prices meaninglessly, when their workmanship is shoddy, when babies are intentionally aborted. You see, civil laws that constrain, you need them in a fallen world. But if the violations of love are not treated as a spiritual spring, if you don't go to the spiritual source, then the river of evil that flows out of the heart of man will break through every legal dam. It doesn't matter what the law says. There's always a way around it. And we'll sweep this world away with injustice. And there's one group on earth that has the potential and has this as its mission. And that is the church of Jesus Christ. And if we are not wholeheartedly engaged in this indispensable spiritual work, no one else is going to do it. For nobody else carries the message of redemption. And justice will never be established at the gate. Third takeaway. Let God mess up our present to guarantee our future. In chapter 4, Amos lists a lot of things that God did to get their attention. And then he builds to a climax in verse 11. He says, I destroyed some of your cities as I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Those of you who survived were like charred sticks pulled from a fire, but you still would not return to me. Weren't you listening? Therefore, I will bring upon you all the disasters I've announced. Prepare to meet your God in judgment, you people of Israel. 
And sometimes I want to just say, God, he will mess up our present because he's really all about our future. Life is not about me. Life is about God. Life is not about now. Life is about eternity. And God will mess up the present if he can guarantee our future. Isn't that what Paul said? 2 Corinthians 12, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses. It's great. In insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Life will often not make sense. And I've got no magic formula to erase your confusion. I can't, I don't have those answers. But Amos comes to a grand conclusion. There is a kingdom coming. And whatever God has to do to make me like Jesus so I'm ready for that kingdom, bring it on. The book of Amos is not primarily a call that we are to, to restore social justice. It's not a call to action. It's there. It's not a call to full employment or equitable welfare system, medical benefits for all, or truth in sentencing. If it's not all, that it, all those things, what is it? It is at its core a call to repentance, to faith in a sovereign God. Verse two the line, the, of chapter one, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherd dry up and the top of Carmel withers. Mount Carmel is supposed to be rich and gets the, gets the rain that comes off the Mediterranean. Our God is the same today as he was back then. He is sovereign, he is relentless, and he will not compromise. And he demanded absolute loyalty from Israel. And nothing has changed except we know more. We have the witness of the Savior. And we know the end of the story. So God's not going to compromise with us. And he expects the same things from us. And an integral part of his relentlessness is his mercy and his grace and his love that he continues to call us as his people back to himself. And yet how do we respond? With a cold religion or with a freshness in our walk with Christ? Amos could only glimpse in the distance at a savior. We see him clearly. But do we, do we respond any differently than they did? Do we respond any different from Israel's 2,800 years ago? Their outer lives gleamed with the rays of success. They looked so good, but their inner lives stunk. And instead of seeking out opportunities to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly, they embraced arrogance 
and idolatry and self-righteousness and materialism. And that brought them face to face with Assyria within 50 years. Injustice is everywhere in our world. Yet as Christians, we often turn a blind eye to the suffering of others for the more important work. Prayer, preaching, teaching. But Amos reminds us, yes, those things are important in our lives, but they ring hollow if we don't care about the needs of other people. Do you find yourself falling into that trap sometimes that we're going to prioritize my prayer over my service? The prophecy of Amos should simplify our choices in life. God has called us not only to be in a relationship with Him, but to be in relationships with each other. Two verses have haunted me this week. Chapter 8, verse 11. Days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food. They're not going to be hungry. Or a thirst for water. But a famine of the hearing of the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of of the Lord. But they will not find it. That happens. In a few years, Malachi will prophesy. He'll write his book. It will be followed by silence from God. No prophets. The word of God ceased, and it was dreadful. We have the whole counsel of the word of God spoken clearly, nothing's hidden. But do we have a famine of the soul? I can preach the right words. You can hear the right words. You can know them, but never change. That's the difference between information and transformation. Truth is given not to be contemplated, but to be done. Life is an action, not a thought. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate Monday morning faith, I pray that we wake up tomorrow and we say, how can you keep me motivated, engaged in justice, in loving my neighbor, in caring for the poor, that we might let your word and your perspective not just inform our lives, but change our lives. That we might be known as people who love one another and who love the world as you've taught us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.